0: Um, it's not a burden for me to be here. Um, it's a privilege. I have so looked forward to spending some time. I was here about a year ago at your birthday party, and that food was so outstanding. So I'm looking forward to the eats directly <laughs> afterwards. I'm sure you've prepared an extensive spread of the most beautiful Mexican food imaginable. <laughs> Not. <laughs> um, I'm a very deep person and one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot when Pastor Wayne hugged me at the beginning is which side should my head go does it go to the left or to the right that's one of the things I'm trying to work out yet I appreciate that <laughs> Which reminds me of when I was in, Israel, uh, in Italy, I, I preached there for a week, and they said to me, two things, don't preach against the Pope, and don't preach against the mafia. <laughs> so I didn't, <laughs> I took that as a, but we had a real, real move of God. But after a week, I, I've, I've changed, my whole life has changed since that time, because I spent a week there, and... Um, the men kiss you on each cheek, but they don't shave. So after a week, I had beard rash. I'd, I'd say, dude, you've got to shave. If you're going to kiss me, you've got to shave. <laughs> so the way it changed my life is I always make sure I shave in the morning. <laughs> I never kiss my wife without shaving. I know what it feels like. I feel the pain. I felt the pain. So uh, anyway, again, it's these deeper things that I ponder. I know most mortals don't go there, but I do. I dare to challenge these things. Another thing I I was considering, Pastor Wayne, is when we did the little hug thing, Uh, I, I get real uncomfortable anything longer than three taps on the back. That just gets weird, you know? More than three taps, I've got to release. It's okay, we've done our thing. Kumbaya, let's get on with the meeting. (laughs) Just my ramblings. Um, This year, things... Let me go back a little bit. We were talking a bit today, Pastor Mike and myself, and we were just mentioning how a, a mutual friend has like a single message. I really do have a single message as well. I've, that's been my message since day one. And it's, in, it's encapsulated in the um, mission statement for Global Ministries and Relief. It's reaching the lost, discipling the found, building the church. That's all I've ever wanted to do is go for the harvest. Now for me, reaching the lost is not the Great Commission. It's the discipling, the found, which is the Great Commission. To disciple, I've got to reach. And then in discipling, I want to assimilate into the life of the family of God. Because it's not just about getting people to attend meetings, but it's that doing life together. It's growing in the family of faith, and that 's also seen in the core values of my Bible schools, which is number one, is to be a lover of God. Everything that we do must flow from this love relationship that we have with God. if we don 't have that first love, passion, and the fulfillment of the 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 great um, commandment that He gave to Israel that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart which is carried through having been forgiven much we love much and our love is born in appreciation for our redemption. Uh, He loved us before we loved Him. I would never have been a lover of God had He not first loved me. And His love having sent Jesus to take my place and to settle the debt that I could not pay, without that I would be selfish, I would be into my own thing, I wouldn't be a lover of God, I'd be a lover of pleasure, I'd be a lover of self, I would be unloving, but what makes me different is that I've been redeemed, and having been forgiven much, I love much. But I remind myself that everything must flow from that love relationship. So reaching the lost without being a lover of God is never going to be a reality. It's just going to be something that we'll nod our heads in agreement and know that it's something that He gave us to do. But it will never be our passion unless we feel His heartbeat. And the way we feel His heartbeat is to be a lover of God. A few months ago, I was doing meetings um, in a in a relatively small church in a town which has got a terrible name called Lostent, I would change the name of the town. I'm not Lostent. I'm Foundant. <laughs> but um, the pastor and her husband, um, they share together, but she's the, he's bivocational, so she does a lot of the pastoring work. And she she shared an encounter she had with the Lord in her early formative days of, coming to Christ, she had grown up in in um, Vietnam and um, he had been in the military and he had pursued her and fell in love with her and she was just uh, a, a Buddhist, a traditionalist and having come to America, she eventually discovered about Jesus and she came to Christ and in those early times she had an encounter where she said, she found herself sitting on the lap of God, and she placed her head on his breast, and she felt his heartbeat, and it's, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I shared with her an encounter I had in my formative years, which was very similar and yet different. It was, I found myself sitting on the lap of God, my head pressed against his breast, and I felt his heartbeat, and it was... Souls, souls, souls. And I said the difference is, once you've discovered this love that He has for you, then what's important to Him becomes important to you. And He is, it's not His desire that any should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. And so His heartbeat is for the lost. And, of course, this is also seen and demonstrated so vividly when Jesus came uh, and He began His ministry. He begins by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to what? Preach the gospel to the poor or to preach to the poor. So He came carrying a message of redemption from day one in the Spirit. Why? Because He was revealing the heart of God. And so our first core value of our school has been a lover of God. The second is to be loyal to your church. I believe it's important for people to belong. And where you belong, you sold out, you committed, you're not just an attendee of the meetings, but you're a part of the household of faith. And you're engaged, you're engaged in your prayers, you're engaged in your attendance, you engaged in your giving, you're engaged in every part of church life, the social side of it, as well as the spiritual side. Then that brings me to the third one, and this is where I'm going to stop, and that is that we must have a passion for the lost. And um, that has gripped my heart from day one. Uh, well, not day one, about week two. The week I got saved... I really didn't have a full appreciation of sins forgiven. I knew I was a new creation, because for the first time in my life, I never wanted to sin. Up to then, sin came naturally. It's what I did. But from that moment, when I said, Jesus, be the Lord of my life, I never wanted to sin. I wanted to please God. So soon after, well, the next day, I bought my first Bible, and I began to read it, and then I started a a, a daily uh, habit, which is not something that was legalistic. It was something I wanted, I desired, and that was to study the Word and to spend time with God in prayer. And I remember vividly about a week after salvation, I knelt down on, on the couch, which Pastor Mike helped move a couple of times, that big orange one we had that you could sleep on. I'm sure you slept on it as well, that long one. And if you looked on the corner, the cat had clawed that. Do you remember that couch? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I, I knelt down at that couch and I prayed this very simple prayer. And Pastor Mike will identify because The houses in South Africa, we don't have air conditioning. We have ocean breeze. So you open the windows and the cool air comes flowing in. It was one of those beautiful uh, South African days with the breeze blowing from the ocean. And I knelt in front of the window. I had my board shorts on, um, no top, kneeling down, pulled my hair back. It was long those days. And I knelt down and I prayed. And these were the words that I prayed. I said, Lord, I want all that you have for me. That was it. I want all that you have for me. And I went to bed. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, the power of God hit me. And I woke up speaking in other tongues. At that stage, I didn't know the baptism in the Spirit. I did not know Acts 1.8. You shall receive power and you shall be a witness. I woke up with the glory of God in my room. I lay there just worshiping God. I got up. I walked around. At 6 o'clock in the morning, I asked my wife to go wake up my next-door neighbor, Wendy LaRue. And her boyfriend was my surfboard builder. He had a house in Jeffrey's Bay. We would, She was my next-door neighbor. We lived next door. We went surfing. Um, we were close friends. I said, Bridge, please go wake up Wendy and bring her here. Wendy came in, you got to see the scene, she had bed head, she had long black hairs, which was common in those early hippie days, and she had a blue nightgown wrapped around her, and she came in and she was trying to focus, and I said, Wendy, you've got to sit down and listen to me, and I began to share, as a week old believer, the gospel, uh, I mean it was... Now, I, I, I mean, I can remember my message vividly. It is, Wendy, I want to share with you what's happened in my life the last few days. I was in a meeting. I called on the Lord, and I was born again. I've discovered His love. And this, this morning, I want to share with you that God loves you, and He wants to save you. And at 6.15 on that morning, I had my first convert. And never knowing that that was the baptism in the Holy Spirit, not knowing that I could keep speaking in other tongues. I didn't have the theology or the doctrines of the Spirit worked out. I didn't even know Acts 1 8. I was still in John's Gospel, where some preacher said to me, That's where you've got to start reading the Bible. Underlining every word in John's Gospel, just, Oh, this is important. This is important, and you take a red marker, and you underline the yellow that you've already colored in, and then you put NB, Nodabena in the side, and then a, a lightning bolt or an arrow, and you're just putting all these little symbols, and, and I'm sharing from this one little portion of scripture that I've read in the first week, and I've tried to memorize, but I got my first convert, and that is being my passion from day one it would take me from village to village throughout southern africa later on to the east of east africa west africa central africa and a little bit of north africa not much of north but it took me there and it's taken me to central america south america the caribbean europe uk and of course united states and canada and um it's It's been, even though I've been a, a people have, would call me a revivalist, I have gone mainly carrying the gospel. Which brings me to why I want to talk about how beautiful are the feet of Him who brings good news. Early this year, I was in a church and I asked the question, Uh, And it wasn't something I'd planned. I just got up and I said, how many of you have been saved longer than 30 years? And about 95% of the hands in that church went up. 95%. I said, how many of you have been saved less than five years? And one hand went up. And this was in Atlantic City. And she was my convert, (laughs) the one hand that went up. She'd come in addicted uh, to all kinds of medications, and her life was a mess, and she got saved. And from that day, she served God. She became part of the church. She had uh, been, uh, I think, uh, saved two years uh, at that stage. But she'd already graduated with the diploma of ministry. And I was like blown away how disproportionate the church was in Atlantic City. Later on, I would ask that same question in different towns, cities, and places that I've been to. And the statistics were not far different. On average, I would say most Christians in the churches that I frequent are over 25 years old in the Lord. Most of them over 30 years of that 85% a few a handful of young kids who are the not only the biological offspring but the spiritual offspring of their parents and uh and I'm thinking this is a this is a drastic situation facing the church of the United States of America it's it's a drastic situation so I while I was meditating on these, this deep research, how many of you have been in deep research? How many have been saved 35 years? But I came up with this formula of percentages, my deep research. It reminded me of soon after I was saved, I went into what was called the charismatic renewal. Uh, I was saved in a Pentecostal church, but at that same time was a whole lot of spiritual events taking place In South Africa, the one was um, what we would call the Jesus people, which were a lot of hippies, the surf culture, the drug culture, people getting saved on the streets. Things were a whole lot different um, in South Africa. But what happened in California and in America started to happen in South Africa at the same time because the Spirit of God moves. And even though we didn't have communication like we have today, what God was doing in America, He was doing in England, He was doing in Europe, He was doing in South Africa. And I was part of that culture that got saved. The second thing is the charismatic renewal started. The charismatic renewal was Methodists, Presbyterians, Catholics, uh, uh, Anglicans, were coming into an experience in the Holy Ghost. Many of them having been in the church their whole lives, having been through um, confirmation, having been christened as babies, actually being born again and filled with the Spirit. And uh, there was a huge movement called Women's Glow, and at the same time the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship. These were all just merging forces at that time. And I was God-hungry. I went to everything that happened. So I would go to the Pentecostal church, but if there was a charismatic renewal meeting and a lot of the speakers from America were coming through and from the UK were coming through, I would go to everything that moved because I wanted to know the word. I wanted to study the word. And we were just, those days you didn't have internet, you'd go to the newspaper and look at Christian events and you'd see, oh, there's a speaker at this Methodist church and You know, off we'd go. So I wasn't like a stranger to Methodist churches or Presbyterian churches. We would go, and it was so awesome. We would be dancing with nuns and priests, and uh, it was just crazy days. I mean, just so wonderful, so slightly weird, but wonderful because of the passion, you know. And we weren't like super strict on people for where they fellowship. We were just in love with Jesus. We'd have cottage meetings. We'd have prayer meetings. There was this huge revival taking place in South Africa, which incidentally is still very, very strong in South Africa. I will go back a few times every year and the, the smallest churches are like 700, you know, and they packed from the start to the finish and uh, Generation coming in, they've kept that spiritual hunger for God. It's just an amazing atmosphere to be in. And um, so my life was being shaped in that culture of revival, of hunger for God. And a friend said to me, Leon, would you go with me to a Methodist church? Uh, There's going to, you know, I want to go and attend. So yeah, I'll go with you. So I get to the church, he doesn't show up, pretty much like some Christians these days as well, but yeah, I went and uh, it was the weirdest meeting because you had to be there, there was this huge Methodist building and there were about four old ladies sitting on the front row and one old man and an old Methodist preacher. And there was me with my long hair, my jeans, my sandals. And and they were very sweet people. We, you know, they welcomed me dearly. They didn't criticize. They weren't as strict as the Pentecostals. They were more accommodating, very sweet, dear people, <laughs> which was a foreign concept to actually be greeted and loved. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> uh, but I was sitting there, and I was in the second row because I left the first row to the group that was there and dear old people and I was sitting there and I was thinking you know in a few months few years this entire congregation is going to be wiped out and I thought who's going to take their place when they go who's going to take their place and that really stuck with me to this day and this year I'm in Atlantic City asking a question. And when I ask that question, immediately I have a vision of myself sitting in that Methodist church with old people on the front row, close to death. And I'm thinking, we're not far removed. I was young, and now I'm a whole lot older. And most of the people have been in the church saved, born again, spirit filled for 30 years or longer. And we're not growing. If we're growing, typically a lot of our growth is just a shifting Christian community. Thank God for that one soul saved. I'm not diminishing in any way her experience in God. And uh, some of the churches, two people, five people, ten people, Thank God, heaven celebrates when one comes. You understand, I'm not a critic of the church. I'm a lover of the church. However, I have to say something that I read in Romans chapter 10. How will they hear without a preacher? Obviously, we're not preaching because people aren't hearing. We have somehow the church has lost its voice in the gospel. To this generation, it's somehow the pressure of political correctness, of being in a world that has become, America has become very, very hard towards the Christian church. When I arrived here 24 years ago, it was already quite hard compared to Africa. You go in any village in Africa, you stop, you stand and preach, and the whole village comes. You stop on a street and people were. I remember one day this guy running past me and I'm standing preaching on the street and you can see he's after his bus, but he stops. He misses his bus to stand and listen to the the word being preached. And afterwards I spoke to him. I said, Why didn't you run and catch your bus? He said, Oh, I would never be disrespectful to God or to the gospel being preached. I'm going to stand here. He would rather be late to get home. And if Pastor Mike will know this. Those guys have to get up 4 o'clock in the morning to get to their bus to get to work. And then they work all day and they run to their bus and these buses are packed to go another hour to the township where they live and to get home 8 o'clock at night to have supper and go to bed to be up early in the morning. And yet he would stop. Lest he somehow would, um, he, he would be viewed disrespecting or dishonoring God. That's the culture I come out of. And then you come into America and it's like there's this war hitting the mute button, silence the gospel. And as a result, the church has not grown at its potential. You know, when when God called me to come to America, one of the things I didn't want to come was because I said, God, this country has contributed to the nation's missionaries, Bible education. What can I contribute to this nation? only to realize that this nation is very god hardened. We may have in God we trust on our currency, but it's not a warm, welcoming Christian environment that you had generations ago. You see college professors failing students just because they would ask a question or write in their paper something about God. They're actually expelled from that uh, class. For the gospel, you can be any religion in this nation except Christian. And the colleges will welcome you and you can have voice and you can have opinion. But don't share the gospel. Don't carry a Bible. You can carry any book you want. You can carry the perversions, but they would do their utmost to shut down the gospel. Thank God for a slight shift that President Trump has brought in that's given us again, the church, a voice that we don't have to fear being criticized for hate speech because we preach the gospel. It's not as much as needed, but it's a start. I'd like to see a whole lot more being done to protect the voice of the church. But it's, the, the pressure is on. And as a result, the situation is similar to that Methodist church in South Africa. We're dying. Now, to die is gain. I'm not afraid of death, but I don't want to appear before God empty-handed. Ha- empty-handed, I want to have my sheaves. I want to have my harvest as the evidence of this passion having felt his heartbeat. So I started a series called How Beautiful a Feet of Him, which I shared with Pastor Wayne, and he said he thought it would be a good message for you. So it's a long introduction, taking half an hour to get there. But in there is the message. You understand? I want to give you a few things that I've seen in the Scriptures. Go with me firstly to Romans chapter 10. And let me read that portion for you. And then we'll go from there to Romans chapter 1. But I want to start in Romans chapter 10. And um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Many of you have, I'm sure, read it many times over. Um, in verse 14, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. One quick thought is, when I read this again early this year, the first thing that jumped out at me were these words, how shall they preach? And I, having worked and uh, I'm very, very committed to the church in America, and I spend a lot of time with leaders and with believers in this nation, I've found a common thread that people don't see themselves as preachers. We have failed to raise up preachers. Now, Bible school students, we can raise up by the thousands. I have thousands of Bible school students. It's like we've got this mentality of the people stay in the attitude of being disciples, which is not wrong, or students of the word, which is not wrong but they never want to become teachers and preachers. It's like, let's just stay hungry to study the Word. Yet in Hebrews, by this time you ought to be teachers. Or in Romans, how will they hear without a preacher? Well, that's not me. I'm not a preacher. Because we have the image of standing behind a podium, being a teacher or a preacher, and not from the platform of our lives. We think in order to be a preacher, we have to have a sound system We have to have lighting, we have to have some kind of a stage, and we have to have an audience. Someone said to me, Leon, what's been your most powerful meeting? It was in Stutterheim area. Racial tension, all the villages were shut down. I went into a village, you know how they would barricade the front of the townships with burnt out cars and tires and stuff. I climbed over the barricades and these ANC guys came up And they immediately accosted me. What are you doing here? I said, I've come to preach the gospel of peace. They said, well, we don't want you. I said, listen, you may view me as a white man in a black area. I don't come to you as a white man in a black area. I come to you as a representative of heaven, as an ambassador of heaven. My skin color is not what brings me here. It's my heart condition. I'm passionate about your heart condition. And I shared with them, they said, you can come in. The first little hut I went into, there was an old man near death. And I sat down, he was on a straw mat, very dark, little thin blanket. He was thin, his eyes were nearly blind, white hair. And I sat down and I spoke with him. I call it the audience of one, the congregation of one. I hit it out the park that day. Everyone in my meeting got saved. (laughs) It was the home run, slam dunk, the best of the best, 100% results. And I got my convert. (laughs) It was my greatest meeting. I've had meetings with 10,000, 20,000, but not 100%. That was 100%. You can't get better than 100%. But I preached. I didn't have a loud voice. I wasn't standing behind a podium. I sat on the ground. He was lying on a grass mat. I preached the same passion that I would to 10,000 people, 20,000 people. I put into that message to my audience of one, to my congregation of one. I didn't. My volume was not as loud. I didn't have a sound system and a generator going in the back. I didn't have security and and helpers to get the converts forward. It was me and him. And he got saved. The same way as 10,000 would raise their hand or 20,000 or 30,000 or 50,000. I've had some huge crowds, innumerable people getting saved in one meeting, but to me that was my favorite meeting of all my meetings because he was so close to death, and I thought, if I didn't get to that village at that time, and and you know, I got to talk to him, and he said, you know, from when I was a child, I have wanted to know God. I eventually gave him a Bible. I went, I climbed over the barricade. I went to the car, and in the trunk I got a Bible, and I gave him a Bible, and he You'll see me when I'm worshiping. I always hold my, these days my iPad, but it used to be a Bible. I always hold it against my chest based on that single encounter because he held that Bible and he wept like a baby. He said, from when I was a boy, all I've ever wanted to do is know God and own a Bible. And he says, yeah, I am an old man and my dream has been fulfilled. I know God and I have a Bible. And he didn't tell me about the Bible. I felt the Spirit of God prompt me to go get him a Bible. Even though I knew his eyes, when you could see the, the, the cataracts over, that he's limited vision, I still wanted to give him a Bible. And he held it, and I thought, this is it. This is why we preach for that miracle, the greatest of all miracles, I believe in laying hands on the sick, casting out demons, praying for people to be filled with the Spirit of God. But the greatest of all the miracles that you could ever have is when someone calls on the name of the Lord because you preached and they are saved. Now, I understand that sometimes, you know, society has changed. In the 60s and the 70s, the early 70s, I could go stand on any street corner and preach now not everyone loved it <laughs> i mean a week before i got saved bridge and i were going to movies and um i had this um, sutu blanket coat um you, you remember the sutu blankets the bright color i had a tailor make me a long coat that went down to the ground like our army great coats because i was a surfer And people think of Africa being hot, but South Africa can get the water can be like really cold, and the air can be cold. And like I said, we don't have air conditioning, and uh, the winters can be quite brutal. And it was winter, and I went to movies with my wife, and we were walking, and there were these preachers on the street handing out tracks, and one gave me a track. And, you know, God loves you. And I said, yeah, all right. I took the track and I crumpled it like this. And I threw it over my shoulder as we walked into movies. And I said to my wife, I said, you'd never catch me doing what they're doing. (laughs) About three weeks later, there I was. This is the day. This is the day. Hey, God bless you. God loves you. God loves you. (laughs) New creation. What you think is distasteful becomes your passion, you know, because you're a new creation. And, and yet, you know, even though things have changed, I have found that it's not as hard as the lie we've been sold. People are just as desperate. People are still looking. People are still wanting the truth. It's no different. Maybe our methodologies are a little different. Uh, We've got to be very sensitive because of this very unstable, unfriendly, hostile environment that we find ourselves in. But you can still daily lead people to the Lord. Which brings me to another thing that led me into the series was I was standing thinking of the Lord added daily to the church those who have been saved. And I'm thinking, God hasn't changed. His mind is exactly where it was 2,000 years ago. He wants to add daily to the church. But look at the environment where the Lord added daily to the church. The people were worshiping. They were fellowshipping. They were praying. They were giving. And they were about the business of heaven. They were going from their gatherings and sharing the gospel with their friends and family and people were being touched by God and God was adding daily to the church. You look at the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to them, to the church. One encounter. How many of you know God can do that again in our society? I'm not going to get into a political thing, but just the thought crossed my mind this week. You know, people are really upset about our NFL football players taking a knee and not saluting the flag. And people are boycotting, you know, they're burning their jerseys and their season tickets and they're not attending. And, you know, I understand the... the the, our constitutional rights, the freedom of speech, and people should have that right to exercise it. But I thought, you know, if football became unpopular, these stadiums would be ideal for the church. <laughs> you know, we can take this nation again. It takes one or two miracles. The gate called beautiful 5,000 were saved. Now it was after preaching, It wasn't just the miracle. Peter preached. Do you understand? They preached. It wasn't just a miracle, but there was preaching. And when the Word goes out, people hear when they hear. Faith is established in their heart. They are born again with the incorruptible seed, which is the Word of God, which is the Word of faith, which we preach, which is the Gospel. Whether it be one or thousands, we should be expecting daily church growth. When I came in, I had a few minutes with Pastor Wayne, and he was telling me some of his goals for this church, and one of the goals is to grow from its present number to about 80, 80 people this year. Well, we're running out of time. We've got about four months. October, November. Three months. October. We've got three months to grow from 50-odd to 80, 30 people. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is a great message. If we are to grow 30, how beautiful are the feet of Him. We don't want to just attract some Christians who are dissatisfied with their churches in the neighborhood. Surely our goal should be for the harvest. Go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts Romans chapter 1, sorry. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. I see three things here. Number one, I see Paul's attitude of a servant. Number two, I see his anointing and calling or his office as an apostle. Number three, I see that he is separated To the gospel. Number one. All of us. From the least. The youngest to the oldest. All of us in the church. Are to operate in the attitude of a servant. Paul said that in Philippians. Let this mind or let this attitude be found in you. Which was also in Christ Jesus. What is that? That's the attitude of a bond servant. That. Should be common ground for every Christian. Am I correct? Number two, we're not all apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. In fact, very few are called into what would be called the fivefold ministry or the ascension ministry gifts. Percentage wise of the church, very few are called into those, but everyone is called everyone has giftings, everyone has ability, everyone has anointing, everyone has authority. That is what we call the priesthood of the believers, that not every, that all of us are called, all of us are anointed, all of us are gifted. Just Paul is speaking about his calling, which was as an apostle. Now, he wasn't... Um, Always walking in the office of the apostle before he walked in the office of the apostle, he was a believer. He, I say to people, there are equippers and those who have been equipped, however, even the equippers before they equippers have to be equipped, they may be called from day one as an apostle, like Paul on the Damascus Road. God, Jesus said, "I've called you to carry the gospel to the to the Gentiles and to the Jewish people." So he was called apostolically from day one, but he didn't walk in the office of the apostle till years later. He was being equipped, being trained, but his passion was seen three days after salvation, when he immediately went to the synagogue in Damascus, and began to preach Jesus, or to preach the gospel. Three days old in the Lord. He was already operating in this separation to the gospel. I want to show you something. Pastor Wayne, would you come stand here? And sadly, you're going to have to represent evil, darkness, and sin. But that's why you got this black t-shirt on. I'm so glad about that. Very small little Jesus there, but he is there. There's hope for you, brother. I always get the good part, hence the white shirt. Saint. Super saint. Awesome. White matching Jesus. Okay. So this is my life of sin. We all come out of darkness. Translated into the the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of light, into freedom. So we are separated from sin to righteousness. Am I right? But we are not just separated from sin to righteousness. We are separated to purpose as believers. And that is separated to the gospel. Now here's my thought from this verse. If we don't pursue the gospel, we're going to hang too close to the old way of life. If we don't move to something away from to something, we will probably hang in the confines of this where the long tentacles will be trying to grab you all the time and pull you back. I love you, man, but not the dark side. Just (laughs) you as a brother. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But do you see that? Do you see Paul's separation? He wasn't just called into an office, into an anointing. He was separated. So whether you're an apostle or a prophet, a teacher or an evangelist, or... An everyday believer, you are separated from sin to the gospel. I don't think a lot of people understand their separation from to. So they stay close to the old way of life because they don't have a sense of destiny, vision, purpose that pulls them away so they stay in the old confines where it's possible that that temptation is always there pulling them back because they've got nothing separating them from. And I believe for that reason, many Christians are struggling in their lives to gain victory and ascension over circumstance, over their old habits, is because they don't have a new sense of destiny, vision and purpose. And vision and purpose is the the vision that Jesus shared, which should be the vision for every Christian, go into all the world and preach the gospel. I don't have vision. Yeah, you do. Everyone has vision. Jesus made it clear. He started, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And his closing thing was, stay in Jerusalem until you've been endured with power and you'll reach the lost. He started with with the call of God for souls and he ended his ministry reminding them that they called for soul winning. I'm glad Pastor Mike's here because he knows my life and ministry. I, as his youth pastor, he will tell you that we went out every Saturday, Friday nights we would have youth. Saturday we'd be out on the streets preaching. Sundays we'd be in the village preaching the gospel. We'd be about the Father's business. And as a result, our youth group grew. And maintained its growth. We preached in the schools. We preached in the college campuses. We preached in the streets. We preached in the neighborhood. And we didn't build our ministry around programs and activities. We, we built our ministry around the gospel. And we built it around discipling those that came in. We would train and disciple them not just to live holy lives, but to live passionate lives for something bigger than themselves. And as a result, we gained momentum. And I've made that my purpose as my ministry, reaching the lost, discipling the found, building the church. So I'm always perpetuating. I have this model which I shared uh, last time I was in Pastor Mike's church. Some of you were in that Saturday session where... If we go from believer to member to minister to leader to reproducer to world changer, and if we would follow that cycle, if I can get people from just being believers to being engaged in the life of the church and become equipped and trained, then they'll become ministers. Well, what is the ministry every Christian has been given? I'll tell you what it is the ministry of reconciliation. People say to me, Leon, I I want to discover my ministry. I'll start with that. You have a ministry. You are separated to the gospel. You have been entrusted with the message and the ministry of reconciliation. If you will start there, you'll discover other gifts, callings, and anointings God has for your life. But if you will start with that single focus, flowing from a love relationship with God, you will see all that God has for your life, there'll be other things God will give you—projects, assignments, and activities, and vision. But everyone should be taking up the the mantle of the gospel as the call of God upon every believer. Let me keep reading, and I'll bring it in another ten minutes. It says. Um, which He promised before through His prophets in Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with the power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So the called of Jesus Christ is every believer, not just called out of darkness into light, but called into the purpose of God, which is the gospel of God. He goes down and he says in verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. I want you to see Paul's common mention of the gospel. Just in a few verses, how passionate he is about the gospel. He is passionate about praying for the people as well. But I want you to see that he recognizes that it's all emanating from his purpose for wanting to be in Rome and and that is to present the gospel. And then we go down to verse 14. He says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, So as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Notice he says, I am a debtor. There are three I am's here in verses 14, 15, and 16. The first is, I am a debtor. Number two is, I am ready to preach. And number three, I am not ashamed. There are three I am's in this. I want to quickly mention these three I am's. Number one, he says, I am a debtor. Now, if the gospel is free and we saved by grace, through faith and not of works, why does Paul assume that word, I'm a debtor? I, I thought there was no cost involved in this. It's faith. It's grace. I receive it. I'm a new creation. I, I believe a better way of saying I'm a debtor would be to interpret it as, I am under obligation. Let me put it to you in Leon's expanded unpublished transliteration. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I am under obligation is because I've tasted and I've seen the goodness of God. And as a recipient of this great grace, That was delivered to me by Jesus on the Damascus Road. I'm persuaded of this gospel so much that I cannot keep it to myself. I have to give it to someone else. Later on it goes, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Not woe is me that I'll be punished because I didn't do it. Woe is me because I would never have reached what God had purposed for me to do. My life would have been led, uh, devoted to something less than God's great plan. And I think there's a lot of Christians who would be able to say, woe is me. Not because they're facing torment or punishment, but because they never really rose to the call of God and understood the implications of their salvation and allowed the passion and the sense of appreciation to so grip them that they came under obligation. Once you realize that holy sense of obligation, you don't need someone to stir you to be a preacher of the gospel. It flows as a way of life. Unashamedly, I am a debtor to all men. Everywhere. I am under obligation because of the deep sense of appreciation that I have for this salvation that I have received. So as much as is in me, and that's a whole lot of power, will, determination, focus, energy, faith, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. My second I am is I am ready. Number one, I am under obligation. Number two, I am ready. Not every Christian is ready. When I shared the gospel with Wendy, my first convert, I was hardly ready. I was ready in a sense because I'd received the empowerment of the Spirit to a level. Didn't understand it. In the simplicity of childlike faith and a deep sense of obligation, I had Wendy woken up from deep sleep to sit down and hear the gospel. That still grips me to this day with the same deep sense of urgency. I was not ready then. A couple of weeks later, I was preaching on the street. I told you I was handing out tracts. I was not ready then. But I was ready. In the sense that I was saved, I was water baptized, I was filled with the Spirit, I was passionate, I was reading the Word, I was studying the Word, I was focusing instead of being into myself and my old way of life. I was now a new creation with new priorities, new passion, new sense of values. I was pursuing those things. Was I fully developed? No. A couple of weeks later after that handing out tracts, God bless you, God love you, and I did that for years, I was standing preaching in Port Elizabeth. Did you ever go to Port Elizabeth, Humewood Beach? Uh, We had a place called Happy Valley. They would light it up at Christmas time with Christmas lights and people would go in and I was standing preaching at Happy Valley. Throngs of people were going in. There wasn't that much entertainment to walk past the lights. In Port Elizabeth, South Africa is like really pathetic once you've been to Disney or Universal. America knows how to put on lights. South Africa, we had a few little flashing bulbs. Oh, this is so wonderful. It's Wondeluk, it's (laughs) Wondeluk. Little kids would be playing with the... Yeah, our happy valley was like your little tree here. That was our valley. (laughs) And and another one, yeah... (laughs) Well, it's better than no tree. <laughs> and he's like, it's Happy Valley. So I was preaching in Happy Valley. <laughs> and this guy walks up to me. And he says to me, you don't know what you're doing. I said, I know. I wasn't like, I, wasn't like, I said, I know. I've been looking for someone to teach me. Are you going to come and help me? He said, I'm too busy. I said, well, then I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing with the best that I've got until someone comes along that will help me. I wasn't ready. I was, but I wasn't ready. In the, the point I want to make is we're ready because of our passion. We're ready because of the, the fact that we are the recipient of this grace. We're ready because we're empowered by the Spirit, but we're never really ready. Years later... And we were talking about this driving over. We are speaking about Dr. Kennedy, great preacher from Florida, um, Presbyterian, who wrote a book which really um, shaped our evangelism in, in Sterling for Gospel called Evangelism Explosion 3, EE3. And um, uh, we would study it and we would go through these, um, scenario, these scenarios. We'd do role plays. And we'd share the gospel and then people would fire questions and we would answer. we'd become really trained to present the gospel, to handle the obstacles. And uh, I became, I was more ready having studied EE3, having studied other great books that had been written, having gone to men of God and asked them to share how to minister the gospel. I made myself teachable. Knowing that I was ready on the one hand, but not really ready as I should be. I wanted to be skilled in the Word. I studied the Word. I meditated the Word. I bought books on evangelism. I studied how to preach the Gospel so that I could become skilled at it. And as a result, and I don't say this arrogantly, but I've calculated that in my 40 odd years of ministry, I've reached almost a million souls many of them large crowds in the villages of Africa uh, as and in um, the cities of Africa later on as I got, you know, stadiums full of people, I reached thousands in a day. But it started with Wendy, my first convert, my second convert, my third, my hundredth, my thousandth, my ten thousandth, thousand, two, three hundred thousand. hundred thousandth, two, three You understand, it, I became more uh, skilled as I gave myself to it. And, And I think a lot of Christians are not ready to preach the gospel. They don't feel trained or adequate. Yet the Bible says our adequacy is in Him. We are on one hand adequate. On the other hand, we realize we've got to grow. And we grow in knowledge. But we've also grown to grow in skills. And Pastor Mike and and Pastor Wayne, I think a lot of times our ministry, we grow people in knowledge but not in skills. The difference between knowledge and skills, one is teaching and the other one is discipling. Do you remember the EE3? What we would do is we would study it, memorize it, do it, but we had a coach with us. Then we would become the coach. And we would start to train people and take them out. I really believe in that model that it's not just so much the the impartation of knowledge, but it's the skills. And a lot of people, I believe in the modern day church, have not had the passion to study the how to. They know they should. And in a sense, they want to. But what they want to become is, would you come to church with me on a Sunday? Which is not the worst thing to do. But they don't feel confident enough to sit down and take the word of God and talk about the state of their heart. And then when the people throw the things, well, what, what about all those who have never heard the gospel? Or what about why do children suffer? How can God be good and yet send people to hell? They don't want to handle those things so they immediately back off whereas someone skilled and trained will take that and turn it around and bring it into a close. Well let's talk about that but let's not forget about the state of your heart. And so we'd, we're ready but we've got to become more ready. I'm ready to preach the gospel anywhere, In all nations and I have. I've Traveled the world preaching the gospel and seeing the results. But even though I've got years in me, I don't stop studying. I'm reading, I'm meditating, I'm pressing, I'm looking at what's working in our evolving culture that is becoming more God hardened so that I can be skilled for this generation. I was skilled for that generation, but am I skilled for this generation? I may have to make some changes in my style. My message doesn't change, but my methodologies would have to make some changes to reach this generation. Because if I keep doing what I was doing, I'm only going to get the results of the past. But I need the results in the present. So I keep studying. So I am under obligation... I certainly am under obligation because of my passion, my love, the spiritual empowerment. I am ready because I've studied, I've meditated, I've not only read the Bible, but I've read many books that train me in the gospel as well as in the follow-up. But then there's a third I am. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greeks. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The reason I'm not ashamed of the gospel is because it's the most powerful message in the universe. (laughs) If people would... Yeah. And, and you know that the God of this world blinds them and stops their ears. And that's why we call to preach, because the gospel opens, uh, pulls back the, the blockages, the scales, the chains. It allows the word to penetrate. Faith for salvation is imparted to them as we preach. They can't call on him whom they've not heard. And uh, n- here's another little thing is, a lot of people don't preach the real gospel. They preach a sin consciousness gospel and not a righteousness conscious gospel. And so many people that have been born again today immediately have this deficiency, as it were, of knowledge because they're brought up with a constant sin consciousness rather than discovering their identity in righteousness. So not only do we have to learn how to handle the gospel, we have to learn how to handle Paul's gospel rather than the traditional gospel that has been preached in this nation for years. But I'm not ashamed of it because I've discovered its reality. I've discovered its power. I've discovered that that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. It's not the fear of judgment that drives me. It's the passion because of His goodness, because of His love, because of His unfailing mercy that persuades me in this holy obligation that I have. So, I wanted to share these three thoughts with you. I am a debtor. Or well, I'm under obligation. I am ready and I'm not ashamed. Some people are embarrassed about Jesus. The pressure of their family, pressure of friends, colleagues. They like secret agents. They, they love God, but they're they, they afraid of the opinion of man. It's not that I don't care, but I don't care. <laughs> Because if they no longer want to be my friend, I'd rather have friendship with God than friendship with man. You understand? And if I confess Him before men, He'll confess me before the Father and the angels. I'd rather have Jesus confessing me as His friend and my friends becoming my enemy than being embarrassed about Him. I'm not ashamed about Him. I realized that Peter was scared for a moment and we all face fear. But if you would seek God, He'd give you boldness, not arrogance. We need sensitivity. We need to be bold, but not arrogant. We need to know how to handle with sensitivity the situation we're in. There's a time to preach. There's a time to be silent. Uh, Some people, they bold in the gospel but they're insensitive and i always think that when i've shared the gospel and that person hasn't called on the name of the lord because you understand that some would sow seed some would water but god gives the increase we don't always see the harvest straight away now and again we do three thousand saved on one day five thousand saved on another day sometimes um, king agrippa says You almost persuade me. Some people are almost persuaded, but not persuaded. When I walk away from those who are not fully persuaded, I don't want to make it difficult for the person who comes after me that will share the gospel. So I want to try with the best of my ability to leave them saying, you know, I didn't buy everything he told me, But he seemed a nice guy and he seemed genuine. And I wouldn't mind hearing more about this at another time. You understand, I want to leave someone with a good impression rather than being insensitive and making it hard for the next person who would come after me. So I want, with passion, with my zeal, with my fire, with my anointing, with my boldness, I want sensitivity. I want wisdom, how to handle it as well. I hope you got something out of this tonight that would inspire you and that you would have beautiful feet. I like these shoes. People often come up to me and say, Leon, I love your shoes. You know, I, what I do is I buy like three or four pairs of the same kind. because when the, I, And I, I do because... When you find something that works for you, just like uh, if you go to my closet, all my t-shirts are gray. I never have to think what I'm going to wear. I wear my camo shorts and my gray t-shirt. <laughs> if I've got anything of another color, it's because someone else bought it for me. I only wear gray. <laughs> I only wear these shoes. I have a black pair and I have these brown ones. They're all exactly the same. They They work. But... People say, your shoes are cool. I know, they're awesome. <laughs> but if you look under these shoes, they've got beautiful feet. Now, they're calloused. They've traveled many, many miles. But they're beautiful because they've carried the gospel. And I think it was um, this is a messianic verse that was carried into the new covenant responsibility. It referred to Jesus. Beautiful feet. He brought the gospel. And we also, we may have calloused feet. Maybe we need to have um, nails cut and trimmed or whatever. Um, I was in India and my son said, (laughs) I love India. We went and I, I, I had Geet, who's my IT guy. You've met Geet online. And my son Matthew and myself, we went to the barber. We had haircuts and full shave. You know, the straight razors, and it was just awesome. And uh, I paid like 10 bucks for three of us to have a haircut and a shave. Just like, you can't beat that. That's good economy. Then we went and we had our, what do they call it, a pedicure. You ladies need to help me. I'm like, I'm like fully male. Did you notice three taps? Okay, dude, that's enough. Like, I'm really male, male. There's nothing that's un male about me. I'm like, Dude, but um, I went and had a pedicure, which is quite an embarrassment for a dude, you know what I'm saying? I was sitting there, and they, they started to massage my feet, and I was like rolling in agony, laughing. I, was, I said, You gotta stop. I was crying, I was laughing so hard, it's <laughs> just so humiliating. Then he began to grind away at my skin. and Because I wear sandals, you'd look at me dressed here. Yeah, most of my life, when I'm not preaching, I'm wearing either flip-flops or barefoot. South Africa, we barefoot. So my feet are pretty calloused. He had a day filing away. It was actually awesome. I can't wait to get back to India in the next five years and have another pedicure. I'm just going to say to the guy, now listen. No massaging. Just get to the skin work. Foul. Do the nails. No tickling. (laughs) I want to have beautiful feet. We need to have a spiritual pedicure. You understand? Get beautiful feet. You're going to have callous feet. You may need some nail work done. But if you carry the gospel, the Bible says you'll have beautiful feet. Let's stand on your beautiful feet. Let's pray. Um, it's been a joy to be with you tonight. I trust that your heart has been inspired, that your vision for the harvest would be reawakened, that in hearing my voice, you would hear the voice of God reminding you of your holy obligation. And uh, so I want to close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for this time that we've been able to share together in the word. Thank you for these hungry hearts of young and older, some seasoned, some in the process of growing young in faith, different levels. But all of us carrying the same mandate, separated to the gospel. We all, from the youngest to the oldest, the weakest to the strongest, we are all separated to the gospel God, tonight, Holy Spirit, come and highlight these truths in these hearts that everyone here would have the I am under obligation, I am ready, and I am not ashamed. May that become instilled in the depths of their hearts, I pray, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to say this in closing. Um, I have two books that, are, that I've brought to sell. They're $10 each. One is called Capture. It's Capturing the Heart of God for the Nations. Every Christian should have a heart, not only for the neighborhood, but for the nations. And the second book is called Bold, which is uh, bold... In the gospel, bold access to God, bold vision, bold in the spirit, bold in spiritual warfare, bold in leadership and bold giving. I think it's a timiest word because we will not win this generation being intimidated. We need to arise, be strong, be bold, be of good courage. We need to be bold in the Lord. That will be available. I'm going to be back there if anyone wants to have a look at those. And um, But before I hand over to Pastor Wayne, is there anyone here tonight that would like me to lay hands upon you and pray for you for a fresh anointing and empowerment before we close? If that's you, just raise your hand and I'll see. And I'm going to uh, pray for you. Is anyone here, Pastor? Come on down. Let me pray for you. And then I'm going to hand over to Pastor Wayne. So, just take two minutes. Come on down, stand here. Let's pray for you. That's awesome.